HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of the latest episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. We're counting down the days to the 4th of July, so this week's theme is independence. After all, we're an independent food radio station. HRN is a labor of love. Staff, hosts, and listeners all share the belief that storytelling can change the world, one bite or sound bite at a time. We take a moment to ponder our founding mothers and fathers, specifically what they were drinking during the Revolutionary War. Rum in various combinations with beer and cider would be the order of the day. We highlight a story of self-sufficiency on the island of Vieques, Puerto Rico. The biggest thing we did was to start a lot of fermented vegetables because we knew the first thing to go would be refrigerator trucks coming to the island. And we examine the challenges facing independent grocery stores across the U.S. The struggle is real, but the future looks bright. Tune in to this week's episode of Meat in 3, available at heritageradionetwork.org and wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and I love to talk with people about what they do and how it influences their personal food stories. This is a show about people, life, and food. Here at Heritage Radio Network, we're in the middle of our summer fund drive. We're hoping to raise $25,000 before July 31st. So if anyone is listening out there who has a cool 25 k sitting around, we can end the drive right now if you just send in a check. Uh, you will get all the member gifts plus more. I think if someone donated twenty five grand, I would come to your house and cook you dinner. Uh, and I bet you we could probably get Southern Damon from the Speakeasy to come and make drinks for that dinner. But if you give a lesser amount of money then uh, you can get things like a custom ringtone on your phone. You can get an HRN pin, a beer koozie, a t-shirt, a subscription to Cherry Bomb Magazine, a Brooklyn Slate cheese board, a studio tour and lunch at Roberta's. There's a whole vast array of really awesome stuff that you can get. And you can know that you're supporting this awesome radio show along with the 35 other weekly shows that are produced right here in Bushwick behind Roberta's. So head on over to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and please give us some money so that we can stay on the air. Uh, today's theme is what is Asian American food? 
In the 1980s, along Main Street in Mount Kisco, New York, there was a Chinese restaurant and a Japanese restaurant, which was really a sushi restaurant owned by a Korean couple, but it was a Japanese restaurant. These were the two Asian restaurants that I most often went to when I was growing up. My perception of Chinese food, much like most Americans who didn't live near a Chinatown, was that there was always fried wontons with duck sauce and mustard on the table when you sat down. Kind of like chips and salsa at a Mexican restaurant, I think it was just the norm, since the norm was some kind of lame bread and butter at most American restaurants. The ethnic restaurants in the 60s and 70s felt they should put something out to snack on. They also had a thing on the menu at the Chinese restaurant called a poo-poo platter, which of course as a 10-year-old boy I thought was funny and delicious and super cool that you were sanctioned to play with fire at dinner. Egg Fu Young was also a favorite of mine, not exactly a real traditional Chinese dish. It wasn't until my teenage years that dim sum and later Fujianese noodles and more opened my eyes to the obvious fact that China is a vast country with ancient localized food traditions and that we were getting a tiny peek into that and much of what was Americanized Chinese food wasn't really of Chinese origin at all and it was really entrepreneurial more than anything. The same thing happened to me with Japanese food and later coming to understand that banh mi and pho are not really all there is in Vietnamese food. And yet, we as Americans love our Asian American food, often as takeout, and we've become more obsessed with really learning the specifics of Asian food and seeking out authentic food experiences and ingredients. It seems that the floodgates have been opened to all sorts of a new wave of Asian American food. As chefs come of age in our food-obsessed culture, they're exposed to so much more and are taking that what they've learned at home and using it to present awesome food. Some of it very authentic, and some of it pushing boundaries and incorporating new ingredients that purists in their home countries might question. Like Anya Natani of Nurture Natto adding turmeric to her excellent natto, combining two superfoods into one sticky, yummy mess. My guest today is Phoebe Tran, who works with Food and Tech Connect and is the creator of the Happy Family Night Market, which debuts this Saturday, July 14th at 99 Scott in Bushwick. The event starts in the afternoon with panels, including one moderated by yours truly, I'll tell you more about that later, and continues with food, a marketplace, drinks, and dancing, and music, and films, and a whole lot more. The goal of the night market is to celebrate Asian American heritage through the lens of food. Inspired by the vibrant open-air bazaars in Asia and the multicultural evolution of America, it will encourage you to explore Asian American narratives through food, art, films, and panels. Thanks so much, Phoebe, for joining me today to talk about the night market and, and other stuff. Thank you, Harry. That was really beautiful. Thanks. <laughs> um, so I'm curious to know right off the bat, like what, what possessed you and your co-founders to decide to throw this awesome, giant Asian American event? Um, honestly, the story starts out very differently, um, depending on the context, but, um, I think that the night market wouldn't have begun without 99 Scott existing itself. Um, the idea came about actually last July. Got it. Um, Jimmy, the chef and owner of Bunker and the owner of Winsun, Taiwanese restaurant in East Williamsburg, um, both sort of came together and were like, hey, it'd be fun to throw a night market. And they they wanted to throw it at 99 Scott because Bunker's right next to 99 Scott. And the events director at the time, Genevieve, um, brought me on to, to do food programming, to help with food programming, programming um, in December after the chefs and the owner of Winston, Josh, just didn't have the bandwidth to... Sure. To put on the night market. Yeah, putting on a night market, I think, is a... I mean, that's one of the reasons I asked that question, is that <laughs> it's, not a, it's not a small undertaking. It's not like having a few friends over for dinner, right? I mean, there's a lot. <laughs> it's taken now a year's worth of planning, right? Yeah, and I, I think she, she had no idea. I mean, at the time, I was working as a line cook at, a, at Bunker. Um, or she knew, she knew of me because I was a line cook at Bunker. But 
she didn't know that I was in the food studies program at the new school and that I planned panels on food as a job. And so when she brought me on, it became way more than just um, just gathering restaurants and chefs to work with. I um, Around this, that same time, there was an article that came out in the New York Times, um, The Rise and Triumph of Asian American Cuisine. Yep. Um, and it, it told the story of like of the experience that I I connected with so much um, growing up with like Vietnamese refugee parents, um, but also growing up in America and on junk food and living in Shanghai and having like my own personal story and knowing that there were other chefs that also had their own to tell as well. Um, that the night market became more than just food; it was using food as a medium to talk about know the, sto- the your experiences and and using art as well um, to talk about your identity and and express um, yourself creatively well yeah. I mean I, I think what it's become and I commend you for pulling it together is something that is very American right I mean it would be one thing to try and stage like a night bazaar and people have done that here but I don't know how well that really translates sort of what those places feel like because when you're in a place in Asia where the night bazaar happens every day and it's there's a regularly operating businesses that's very different than what is essentially a giant pop-up right and the feeling of it is different and the and the people there are very different and the way that the crowd feels is very different um, but to pull in all these other aspects and to add these things in I feel like that's sort of you know we talk about you know America kind of diluting culture or making, th- you know, like, but I think there is an exciting opportunity here because we are such a melting pot to say, well, let's bring it all together and let's not just make it, it's not just Thai or Vietnamese or Chinese, it also includes India and it includes all these other Asian things that you probably wouldn't find all in the, the same night market in Asia. Mm-hmm. And then let's add in all these other things like panel discussions, so. Yeah, I mean, in my experience while living in Asia, I, I got to go to like India and Korea and Taiwan and all of those night markets are so different, but they all include sort of like little pop-up shops of like knickknacks. And in India, there were like little shops selling spices sure. and pots and pans. And I feel like when people think about food or food night markets, they think about like six to six night market in Los Angeles or right. Queens night market where it's all just food. It's just food vendors. It's not a. It's not a fully operational market place mm-hmm. in a more traditional sense. Yeah. So when I, when I was brought onto the team, I think a really important thing that I sort of uh, mentioned was that it needed to have an underlying mission of like educating people about food because so often, I mean, more often than not, you just find that. In those types of pop-up environments, people just tend to eat without really thinking about what they're eating, and so that's why the panels were so important. Were such an important program to add in. Sure. Um, and there's so many like amazing food writers and and people like you who are who are really, I think, pushing the boundaries um, in educating people in alternative ways. Oh, thank you. I mean, I I think that's a good segue to promote the panel that I'm leading. So I'm I'm leading a, a panel about. Uh, fermentation um, and Asian fermentation and how Asian American chefs or, or or how American chefs are taking Asian traditional fermentation and pushing the boundaries with that. So I will be 
having a panel discussion and really my goal as the as the moderator is to make it really a discussion not as much sort of like straight interview um, with Mara King who runs uh, Ozuke which is a pickle company in Colorado with Rich Shi who is our cook quest uh, and does lots of work with Koji I feel like Rich will make miso out of anything. Like you could bring Rich a pair of old socks and like a shirt, and I bet you he could make miso out of it. He actually made it out of instant ramen recently. Yes, I saw that. <laughs> uh, Ken Fornataro, who uh, you know has worked in some Michelin-starred restaurant kitchens, but has maintained a connection to fermentation sort of all the way throughout. Um, and Anya Natani, who I mentioned already, uh, who is who runs Nurture, which is a natto company based here in New York. Um, so, you know, really it should be, it should be fascinating. So if you're around and you are going to the night market, please come to, come to the panel. If you're around on Saturday and you don't have plans, you should come to the night market and come to the panel and sort of check, check out everything that we're doing. So I'm curious to, to talk to you, I mean, as someone who grew up Vietnamese American, um, about, you know, Vietnamese food in America and growing up. I mean, I, I sort of think about, and I obviously talk a lot about food and, and I find myself thinking a lot about my own family and, and growing up and not having a super strong connection to place, but there were dishes in sort of our family canon. And I can't classify them as being specifically Jewish or specifically Eastern European. I mean, one of the dishes was one that my mom always cooked because it came out of a cookbook. It turns out that my grandmother's brisket recipe, which to me epitomized like Jewish family home cooking, is actually from the back of a Lipton onion soup box from the 1950s. But like that was her recipe. So I'm curious to know, like, what was in your family's canon when you were growing up? Mm-hmm. Um, I think what's so interesting about Vietnamese American food is that it's it's tied to so so closely tied to to American history. I mean, um, Vietnamese migrants came to America after the fall of Saigon, and so and the most of most of them were Southern Vietnamese people, and so most of the food that you see in America is mostly Southern Vietnamese food. Right. But previous to Vietnamese immigrants coming to America, there were a lot of Chinese supermarkets. So in a lot of my family's cooking. There's a lot of integration of Chinese ingredients, especially those that are like processed Chinese ingredients or processed Vietnamese ingredients. Like the Lipton onion soup in my grandma's (laughs) brisket, right? Oh my gosh, that's funny. Um, Yeah, so a lot of the times when I talk to my mom about her recipes, um, she includes a lot of these products that she was so used to using when she first arrived to America. Um, But she'll also mention the fact that, you know, some of the stuff was better quality or made from scratch or farmed locally in Vietnam so you could find those specific herbs. Yeah. Um, but it's really amazing to see that over the years she's she's taken plant cuttings or taken little herbs from the supermarket and planted it in her own garden. Oh, wow. Um, in order to just... She has an amazing, like, abundant tropical garden in California, which is insane. But her and my dad have this green thumb. And... A lot of my childhood memories of food, I, I would say, I think about trips uh, going up to LA and having big family reunions that were all sort of attached to a big pot of whatever was being cooked that evening. So one of my aunts and uncles or my grandma would be making this big pot of like Vietnamese, a traditional Vietnamese dish, whether that be like Bung Ryu, which is my favorite. It's a crab and tomato and pork soup. Um, and everyone would be like on the floor preparing the herbs and 
and just uh, yeah, gathering together and eating eating the food and it was always very different than going to a restaurant. Right. It, was, it was never as good. Do you do you have you seen so so with that um, with the kind of growing their own uh, I guess uh, herbs and and different vegetables and things have you seen your parents cooking like change from being a more like Chinese Americanized version back into what you think is more like a traditional Vietnamese version because I I think about like a lot of these dishes like something like egg foo young right I mean like that yes it has its basis in real Chinese cooking but it was very Americanized because it contains ingredients that were readily available here I went to a Chinese restaurant in Ukraine in 2005 and it was dill in the wonton soup because I don't think they could get any other mm-hmm. herbs mm-hmm. and dill was readily available and probably their customers were used to having dill in everything so they put dill in the wonton soup which seemed so discordant to me mm-hmm. but it was what they had yeah, I I feel like when I was growing up, um, it hasn't it hasn't changed very much. I mean, I think that Chinese supermarkets um, adopted or or sourced or grew started growing um, what was demanded by right. you know the the community, um, the Vietnamese community, and so a lot of those products were available. Um, I think what's interesting is like these when I say ready-made condiments, it's more like the fermented shrimp pastes. Um, that would probably have been made, you know, in Vietnam. Same with the fish sauce. Right. You know, yeah. all of that stuff is made in, like, at much different facilities than those that are sold here. Right. Um, whereas now, I think, since my parents moved to America and have been cooking Vietnamese food for this many years, they've basically become loyal to certain brands and so whenever I ask for recipes, it's always like, oh, look for this brand. You know, we've right. tested all the different <laughs> rice noodles and this is the best the one. one. Yeah. yeah. But, that, but then I think you have, I mean, then you have interesting things happening. Like, uh, I mean, I don't know what your, your parents' opinion would be of a brand like Red Boat Fish Sauce. But, you know, you have a brand like that, which really has come out of kind of the American specialty food world, but is actually produced in Vietnam fish sauce. It's funny because I brought that home and my parents didn't like it. Really? Yeah, they, they've they just grown so used to three crab. Yeah. It has a little bit of MSG in it, just yep. a touch. Yeah. And if you compare it with like uh, Tiparos or even Red Boat, they're all so different. Yeah. Like I've done like small taste tests and sure. like three crab is just a little bit sweet. Yeah, um, yeah. And that MSG is irreplaceable. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, although I use Red Boat, Red Boat, yeah. you know. And so that's sort of where you see the little tiny, like, nuances of change yeah. from generation to generation. Yeah. Um, but it's funny because when you talk about, like, American, growing up in America, my parents probably had no idea how bad fast food was for me or for any of my family. So I grew up eating fast food all the time on dinty more beef stew <laughs> we would fight over the little beef chunks and like vienna sausages oh my gosh they were my weakness when i was younger <laughs> yeah i mean i was gonna i was gonna make a comment about you know making your own fish sauce right because i'm doing this panel on fermentation and fish sauce is actually one of those things i've always wanted to make but i've never never actually made it myself and and understanding the sort of varieties there but i don't think you can make your own canned Vienna sausages like I don't think there's like a there's not a homemade version of that yeah I don't no. think it's not really it doesn't really make any sense 
Uh, <laughs> we're going to take a short break and uh, hear from one of our sponsors here at Heritage Radio Network. Don't forget, listeners, you too can be one of our sponsors here. If you go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Um, and when we come back, um, Phoebe, I would love to um, talk about who else we're going to see at the night market, like what's going to be available. this weekend. They've asked you to bring wine. You need a bottle that says, I'm laid back enough that I didn't think about this choice for hours. But also, I've graduated from Two Buck Chuck, proving I can provide for your daughter and our future children. Where to go from here? Just ask Vivino. Vivino knows feeling pressured in the wine aisle can sour the whole experience. But with the largest wine inventory, Vivino gives you the best price on personalized picks based on your taste profile, then ships them right to your door. Scan wines, compare reviews, save your favorites, and even get unlimited free shipping with Vivino Premium, plus a free 30-day trial. So, when that next visit rolls around, you know exactly what that dry Alsatian Riesling says about your commitment to your mother-in-law's Sunday roast. Visit vivino.com heritage to stock up. Vivino. Wine made easy. Welcome back to Feast Your Ears. I'm Harry Rosenblum, and my guest today is Phoebe Tran, the co-creator of the Happy Family Night Market, which, if you're just tuning in, is coming up this Saturday, July 14th, at 99 Scott. It will be an all-day extravaganza of uh, and celebration of Asian American heritage and culture through the lens of food. So, uh, you know, I know that everyone listening, except maybe one person, is obsessed with Asian food. We all seem to be at this moment in time. So you should come and check it out. So, Phoebe, before the break, we were talking about your, you know, a little bit about your childhood and growing up and your love of Dinty Moore. Uh, who, what, what kind of things can people expect to see? Um, I mean, I know that they're, like, the list is really long, and if people go to, hold on, I want to get the website right, happyfamilymkt.com, they can see uh, a listing. But like, can, you, can you give us a couple of highlights? Mm-hmm. Um, so as you said, the panels start at 1.30, um, there's four panels, um, all of them ranging from fermentation, um, perspectives on Indian American cuisine, where they're, they're going to be talking about things like co-opting turmeric and decolonizing Indian food and curry, um, and gender and tradition at the table, mukbang. Have you ever heard of that? No. Um, it's this uh, live streaming eating fad that Whoa. originated in Korea and now it's become this whole like viral video thing where people just record themselves eating and and like millions of people watch them weird wow <laughs> and it, i mean and but it's like a solo eating experience that then yeah. other people are joining in by watching yep wow that's amazing 
Um, so that's sort of like a, a highlight of the panels. Um, there's going to be an art and food marketplace. Um, the art marketplace is going to have a green screen photo booth where there's going to be your favorite food scenes from various probably Asian movies oh, nice. um, in the background that you could take a pic- take your picture in front of. Um, there's going to be an art installation by Alison Kuo. She is a performance artist that uses food as a medium to talk about, you know, life and society and <laughs> things. And um, she's um, she's taken she's collected vintage Chinese cookbooks over the years, um, and she's created these amazing collages and printed printed them on fabric. American Chinese cookbooks. <clears throat> American Chinese cookbooks. Wow. Um, and she's she's covering an entire 10 by 10 foot pop-up tent with these fabrics and then also printed uh print all over me has helped print bean bags that are covered in these prints as well um oh wow so So it's it's like an immersive americanized chinese cookbook environment Um, that sounds great (laughs) yeah and then the food marketplace um there's some the majority of the chefs are actually pop-up chefs that you wouldn't typically find in any brick and mortar restaurant so the food there's going to be like uh let's see korean uh korean kimchi hot uh, corn dogs by dotori um what else there's going to be a grilled bavette steak with fermented fish paste um what other things uh there's butterfly pea onigiris with bampo tofu filling Yum. um really awesome food um and then there's going to be films in the basement Curated by Angeline Gregasson and Bariha Zaman. Um, there's uh, In Search for General So's and oh, Jira yeah. Dreams of Sushi and Eat, yeah, Drink, yeah. Man, Woman. But there's also a bunch of independent films. Um, and then there's going to be daytime DJs. And then the big after party starts at 10 o'clock, uh, hosted by Bubble Tea. It's a queer Asian dance party collective. Yeah, the pictures of them on the, on the side <laughs> are really great. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, I mean, you could come and participate in whatever you'd like. I think it sort of caters to a very broad audience based on your interests. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm really looking forward to it, both leading and attending the panels. The the, the one about Indian food I'm really excited by and, and very interested in. Um, you know, one of the things that I that I find super interesting is to look at the obsession with Asian food in America, but also through the lens of when these different immigrant groups came to this country. So, I mean, I, I believe that the exhibit is still up at MOFAD about Chinese food in America, and it's Chinese food as an, as an immigrant Asian food in the United States is really old because so many Chinese immigrants came initially to build the railroads mm-hmm. in the 19th century. But then you look at something like Vietnamese food where it wasn't until after the fall of Saigon in the 70s that that immigration happened. Or you look at something like Indian food where it was essentially illegal for Indian nationals to immigrate to the United States until the 1960s. And so, I mean, as a kid growing up, I always felt like Indian food seemed like it was very well established here, um, you know, but, but then it's not really. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not really that you know that well established. So, yeah, I'm really interested to see how these conversations evolve over the years, because it really, it, the the people who are talking about it are like speaking from one generation. But what happens when you when you ask someone who's lived like a few years after that yeah. and experienced like more of a fusion of cuisines while growing up, and they didn't have immigrant parents, but yeah. 
Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I you know, you can, people listening, you can't see it, but Phoebe has a really neat tattoo of an onigiri on her arm. Um, you know, and, and I think about even like what happens with my children, right? Like, I mean, I personally love Japan. I love Japanese food. We cook a lot of Japanese-ish food at home. Obviously, I make chankanabe with doing sumo stew. Um, but, you know, my, like my son asks, his favorite onigiri is hot dog and strawberry in it. <laughs> Which, like, at the same time is like totally not traditional, but at the same time also sounds and feels very modern Japanese, but is totally American. Right? To have a piece of hot dog and a piece of strawberry inside an onigiri. Is that something that he came up with? Uh-huh. Oh, my gosh. Have you tried it? Uh-huh. How yeah. is it? I, ma- I, make, uh, I make maki with it, too. And he loves it. Wow. Yeah. I gotta try I that. I mean, it's not my personal favorite, but, like, I, you know. But a hot like, dog from where? Uh, usually from Ends Meat, uh, the ones we end up using, because that's we We have a Brooklyn kitchen down in Industry City, so usually get them from John. Uh, I really like... Uh, I really, really want to, to, like, plan a pop-up where people are making some sort of, like, rice balls. Yeah. Like a onigiri or, like, um, oh, God, Adam calls it leaf cake. But it's it's actually, like, called banteak. So it's something in, in during Lunar New Year's you make with uh, banana leaves or palm leaves. And you put sticky rice in it and then a layer of mung bean and then some pork in the center and you roll um, it all yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You steam the whole thing, you slice it and fry it. But there's a there's a restaurant in uh, LA called Good, Good Girls Annette and they do these like pop-ups where everyone comes and they make their own little rice balls and fry it up. So you've done a number of pop-ups, I mean as a chef, right? You did a burger pop-up in Shanghai. Mm-hmm. Um, and you had a you had uh, Umi and Bushwick, tell me about tell me about your experience doing those. Like, is that something you're going to do again? And is it something you'll either will you do those again, or will you just do different pop ups? Um, I think Happy Family Night Market is like the beginning of of being the planner of smaller pop ups within. Got it. Um, I've toyed with the idea of doing a pop up again um, because I I don't work in a restaurant. And I produce events, so it was just natural to, to go into planning Happy Family Night Market. But pop-ups were really like my foot in the door to begin cooking. I mean, I did the burger pop-up in Shanghai when I, I had no kitchen experience whatsoever. I literally just set up a really janky makeshift street food stand with like a suitcase <laughs> with my best friend and started selling outside of clubs. And then... Uh, the Umi Bushwick pop-up w- was uh, across from Three Diamond Door. We were open from like 3 a.m. Or sorry, not 3 a.m. 9 p.m. to, to 3 a.m. or oh, 9 wow. p.m. to 4 a.m. <laughs> um, but it was just like a little window. And the menu was like sort of a storytelling food menu. We we would ask people where they wanted to travel to. Oh, neat. And they would choose the country. Um, and we would... The menu is based off of various countries that we had tra- traveled to while we Great. were living in Asia. So, yeah, pop-ups are really fun. Yeah, that sounds like <laughs> a neat idea. And are you already planning for uh, Happy Family Night Market next year? Um, we have, we have like, a, a little folder where we keep all of our sort of dreams, yeah. dream ideas. <laughs> um, there was an idea. So initially when I was first brought on to the team, I really wanted to recreate the yatai booths in Japan. I, I've, I've been to Fukuoka where there are these night markets, but instead of like pop-up tents, there are actual carts that like 
can be collapsed. And they create these like very intimate eating experiences where you sit around a chef that has like a little uh, flat top and a steamer and they just prepare the food in front of you and you can only see about like 12 people around you. And I wanted that to be a part of the night market where there were mm. like four intimate eating experiences happening in the midst of like this entire night market. Um, so that's definitely uh, a dream of in, in the night market that's that awesome. I want. To I mean, I've, I've always wished that New York would figure out how to have a culture of standing restaurants the way that Japan does. Mm -hmm. Like I just, I love the places where you can just walk in and get like a $4 bowl of udon and you just stand there and you just get a glass, a plastic cup of water and they give you like, a, you know, the thinnest paper napkin you could buy. It's like not even worth using at all. <laughs> and there's a place to put your hat or a bag on a shelf and you just stand there and you just eat it. Mm -hmm. And then you go on your, with your day. Like mm -hmm. I just, I wish New York had a culture like that. Yeah, there's a lot of things about Japan that I, I wish I could just <laughs> put in a little suitcase and bring over here. Yeah. But it's not, you know, but then but then at that point, like, how much do we, like, then is it, I don't know. I, I don't know if that stuff, like, does it work? And then, like, you know, part of the excitement of going to Japan, right, is yeah. that you get to go and experience that. Um, and that culturally we're different, right? We like to sit like all these people and eat pizza. <laughs> yeah. Actually, it's... The, the onigiri tattoo is inspired by this trip that I took um, in Japan that just will never be replicated again. It was, have you ever heard of the Shimanami Kaido? Mm -hmm. it's a, so I took a biking trip across these like seven islands and six bridges. There's this tiny little seafood place on the water where you walk through this giant seafood market and place all these different fish in your basket. And there was like a fridge with all these half used sauces. All of them were different. Wow. None of them, I, like, I could not read or understand any of them, but you just grab whatever is enticing and you bring it to your table and there's this little grill on the table. Oh, and you just cook it there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, there's a, there was, I went to a butcher shop in Japan that was like that, where outside they had a bunch of little tables with grills, and so you would go in and buy your meat, and there's all these sauces, and then you go outside, and they were telling me on the weekend people line up down the block to wait to buy the meat and do the grilling. And I thought that would be so amazing here mm -hmm. to have like 12 of those out in front of your restaurant yeah. and then have people just, or have it, you know, whatever out in front of your butcher shop. And you just like people grill it themselves. Yeah. Street food. Yeah. Street food. Totally. Special about for sure. That. Um, well, we're just about out of time. So is there anything that I've forgotten to tell people about happy family nightmare? You can follow on Instagram at happy family MKT. You can find Phoebe on Instagram at faux baby. Right? Faux BB. Faux BB. Whatever you want to say. At, at, on Instagram. Um, anything else that you want to make sure people know about the night market? Um, I would say buy your tickets online. Um, I think they're going at 22 right now for a day and night pass and seven bucks for the after party. Um, but yeah, you can, you can come and buy tickets on the day of. It'll be really fun. Everyone should come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. I'll be there. Right, so we're gonna have a good time. Well, thank you so much, Phoebe, for joining me. Thank you on Feast Your Ears. Um, as I always do, I'm gonna leave you guys with a, uh, a sort of recipe segment, but this this one's really more just a recipe idea. Um, Phoebe mentioned to me before the show that one of her one of the first things that she learned to make was scrambled eggs with fish sauce, black pepper, and lots of shallots, which is not exactly a recipe, but it sounds super delicious. And so I wanted to sort of put it out there to everybody. Um, I think that's what I'm gonna make for dinner tonight. It seems like a be like the perfect thing to have on like a hot summer night cooks quickly 
um, you know, and just like is super savory and can kind of go with anything. So I think that and a salad. So make some scrambled eggs with fish sauce, black pepper, and lots of shallots. However you see fit to whether you want the shallots to be raw and crispy, I think that'd be really good. They sound like they'd be good fried. You could saute them and put them in the fit, in the egg. It doesn't really matter. But put those ingredients together, and that's, that's this week's recipe. It's got to be moist. <laughs> scrambled eggs got to be moist. All right. Good. Thanks for the tip. <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to Feast Your Ears today. Big thank you to David Tattashore for engineering. Don't forget to head over to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and support this and all the other great shows here on HRN. Please come to the Happy Family Night Market on Saturday. And next week, a week from tomorrow, is Sumo Stew at Arrogant Swine, also out here in Bushwick on Morgan Avenue. You can see more information in the great lineup of chefs that we have at sumostew.com. Uh, but it is probably the best deal going. You get to have food and you get to have drinks we're going to do a whole hog chankonabe you get to watch streaming sumo from the nagoya basho uh, which just started yesterday and is already working out to be a pretty interesting uh, and exciting tournament so come on down for that you can find feast your ears as well as lots of other great shows at heritageradionetwork.org on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and take a moment to like the show uh if you do would love to see my likes go up even though i don't really know what that means but please go ahead and like it online if you if you want to. You can reach out to me via email with questions, harry at thebrooklynkitchen.com, and you can follow me on social media at thefoodballer. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.